everyone, and welcome to the 66th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Evelyn Riggs, and it's so hot outside, people. And it's been hot for the past month, which only has me worried that August in the Midwest is going to be like standing on the face of the sun. It's even hot in this term used loosely studio, which is on the second floor of my suburban home and doesn't get the best airflow from our nearly 20-year-old air conditioner. Everyone knows I love to bitch about things, especially in this opening segment, but heat is seriously near the top of the list of things that I just cannot stand. You get too cold in the winter? Put on more clothes. I can't just rip off my skin when I'm baking in the shade with a fan on me. I am the first person to admit that I get painfully obnoxious when it's hot out because the only thing on my mind is getting my pale, sunburning ass somewhere that isn't reminiscent of Hades. It's even so hot that in Chicago, the city is using fireboats, which are like fire trucks, but boats, uh, to spray down bridges because the metal has gotten so hot that it's expanding and preventing the bridges from raising to let boats through. That's too hot. But it's not just me. Heat sucks for cars, too. Being in cars sucks because they heat up faster than just being outside, which is why dogs and babies constantly die if you forget about them, which, I mean, you shouldn't forget about them regardless of the temperature. It sucks for the car, too, because the aircon saps so much power from your engine. Further, the engine has to work harder to keep its own operating temperature down to avoid causing internal damage. Plus, since the air is hot and thick, it's expanded, and the oxygen content per cubic foot of air is lower, which means your car needs to pump in more air to maintain a constant air-fuel ratio. In turbo cars like my GTI, that means spooling to higher RPMs, which in turn generates more heat because the exhaust is what turns the turbocharger. Even outside the car, I've needed to pull my motorcycle apart for the past two months to figure out what broke last time I tried to ride it, but it's been so incredibly awful outside, it's just been sitting in my garage on the tender, completely untouched, gathering dust and Amazon boxes that I can't be bothered to take out to the recycling because, guess what, it's too hot out. Let alone getting under the car to change your oil or something, this is hands down the worst time of year to be a mechanic or to try to do anything on your own car or truck. Basically, screw summer, which is why next week I'm going to try to escape the heat by going to Canada, Montreal and Quebec City to be exact, where my wife and I will be doing our best to get away from the scorching ball of sky cancer above head right now. Uh, We may get around to a rental review sometime next weekend, but expect a break from your weekly news updates next Thursday. But for now, let's get going with your top story. The past couple of weeks have been big for Elon Musk and Tesla, which has hit a couple of important milestones, including the goal of hitting 5,000 Model 3s completed in just seven days, which is an impressive pace for a fledgling company learning to build a mass-market car, effectively for the first time. Of course, there are many caveats here, the primary one being that the pace of production doesn't seem sustainable, with workers going for 10- or 12-hour shifts and others being borrowed from the Model S manufacturing line 
as well as making cars on a production line outside underneath some big tents, which one analyst pointed out they hadn't seen outside of war zones where troops were trying to fix broken Humvees. Uh, it also means that the production S production, the Model S production, is now 800 units behind, which is a lot better than the 40, 420,000 units of Model 3s the company has orders for but hasn't filled yet. Ford took the opportunity to throw some shade again, commenting that while Tesla built 7,000 cars in seven days, their production lines completed the same number of vehicles in just four hours. Yeah, Ford, very mature, but you've been doing this for a hundred years, so your manufacturing techniques are, well, more mature. Uh, what this does, what does make this feat more impressive, is that Tesla and Musk are basically reinventing the wheel here. They took established conventions for making cars and just threw them out the window. There, there's an excellent story in Bloomberg this week by Tom Randall, Josh Idelson, uh, Dana Hall, and John Lippert uh, that you definitely need to check out um, that explores the exact breadth and depth of Tesla's experimentation into different production techniques. The, they were described by Musk as looking like an alien dreadnought due to the extensive, extensive use of robots designed by companies bought up by Tesla. They truly want to make every part of their vehicles, from the seats to the, the processes for manufacturing, with the exception of the batteries, which, of course, Panasonic provides. In this process, they have learned a lot and are continuing to do so. And as Musk said himself about certain innovations they've made, quote, when you see it, it looks super dumb, and you are like, wow, why did we do that? End quote. Indeed, they're having humans take over jobs that they spent time developing robots to do because there are just some things that humans can do better than machines, or at least more quickly and efficiently. While this wheel reinvention and production innovation is novel and respectable in, in the sense that the constant hunt for optimization and maximization should be what companies are doing, to ensure that they aren't throwing money away by doing things inefficiently, it's profoundly arrogant of Musk to think that existing car makers aren't already doing that and haven't been doing that for decades. Just because companies do things one way doesn't mean they're doing it wrong, and it often means that they're, they've tried doing it the wrong way before to end up doing things the way they are now because they're better. Sometimes the wheel doesn't need to be reinvented. And other companies use suppliers to provide parts not only because it's less expensive than designing machinery to, take the, to make the parts themselves, but because it's already the supplier's core competency to make parts common among many vehicles, making it not only cheaper, but better quality and more dependable. Instead of following a well-worn path and trying to do certain things differently and better, Tesla bit off more than they could chew from the start, trying to do everything differently, and are constantly pushing the envelope to make up for time lost in trial and error. Whether that's breaking machinery by pushing it to see where its limit is, forcing employees to walk through raw sewage to keep lines moving, or having someone stand at a button to hit reset every time a sensor goes off erroneously instead of just fixing the sensor. The guess-and-check style of production continues. What this means is that production quality could not just vary batch to batch, but even vehicle to vehicle, and 
I'm not sure about you, but I don't think I want to spend $50,000 on the first generation of a car made using entirely new production methods inside a dirty tent by robots being pushed beyond their capacities or by humans overworked to the point of developing what workers call the Tesla stare, basically an empty gaze suggesting just severe burnout. Nevertheless, 420,000 people have committed to doing just that and remain waiting for their vehicles. These people, by the way, were asked last week for additional $2,500 to secure and uh, uh, create their, their already paid deposits for cars. This despite the fact that Elon said he wouldn't have to raise any more money this year, which is almost certainly going to have to change in order to build the plant in Shanghai that Tesla announced this week. That building will apparently be able to churn out 500,000 vehicles annually, and the sooner the better for Elon, considering that the new tariffs imposed by China mean that each Model S imported to China now costs an additional $20,000. But as Tesla just today reached their 200,000 vehicle limit, that means buyers no longer receive the full 7,500 tax incentive, and as GM ramps up the Volt production to meet growing demand, and as Volkswagen and Mercedes and others ramp up their own electric vehicles, Tesla is really going to struggle to compete if they can't either solidify some of their experimental procedures or adopt some best practices from existing car companies. Investors struggle to find any good news from the company these days, and they start to look past the hype of new roadsters, flint water projects, and useless child submarines and start to see the value of old methods of car manufacturing. For his sake and for that of the company, hopefully Elon Musk will start to see how the wheel was just fine before he started to recreate it. You people listening to this podcast are probably American consumers, which means you are the problem and why everything is expensive and why we can't have nice things anymore. I'll get specific. The sales of passenger cars are in the toilet if selling only 5.3 million cars can be considered toilet dwelling, but that's actually on track to set a 60-year low, according to Automotive News. People who have sold a car and bought another car are only 53% of the market, meaning almost half are moving on to SUVs or crossovers. Conjecture here is that low fuel costs have led to more SUV and truck sales, but guess what? Gas prices are up 31% over last time, last year at this time, according to CNN Money, and are the highest they've been since 2014. Sure, new crossovers and SUVs are more fuel efficient than their predecessors, but 31% more efficient? I don't think so. What's more, these SUVs are literally killing us, with the pedestrian death rate jumping 40 ups, up 46% since 2009. Nearly 6,000 people died after being hit by a car in 2016 alone. And this, according to the Detroit Free Press, is due in part to the fact that SUVs and trucks are two to three times more likely to kill pedestrians if they hit them than cars are. And we've covered this before, with some recommendations being to change car design or to implement new rules for pedestrian safety, but there is little or no progress being made on that front. And as sales continue to boom, so can we expect the death rate. Have fun paying for all that extra gas on the way to murdering people, you guys who buy more cars than you need. 
In much better news, uh, Travis Pastrana pulled off a lovely homage to one of his childhood heroes, Evil Knievel, by completing three jumps to best the record set by the Daredevil back in the 70s. First was a 143-foot jump, jump over 52 cars, then a 192-foot jump over 16 Greyhound buses, and finally a jump over the fountain at Caesar's Palace. The latter was the jump that Knievel famously failed to complete, hitting the knuckle of the landing ramp and spilling over the handlebars, breaking his pelvis, ribs, and several other painful-sounding bones. Um, even with a much shorter run-up of just 200 feet because of all the development Vegas has had in the past 40 years, uh, Pastrana's Indian FTR 750 capably handled the jump in triple-digit heat. It's interesting to note that Pastrana didn't use a dirt bike or something lighter and possibly more capable of handling distance jumps, but rather a modified cruiser or short track racer much more similar to Knievel's actual motorcycle. It certainly helped the resemblance more that Pastrana wore the classic white outfit with the cape adorned with the navy blue V with stars on it. I mean, this was all a publicity stunt for Nitro Circus and History Channel's Car Week, despite the fact that this was much more bike than car. But it was still really cool to hear Travis talk about his love for evil and how he was inspired to start Nitro Circus and, and stunt work. Um, those old heartwarming publicity stunts, they really pull at your heart slash purse strings, don't they? Um, following the recent purchase of Charge Master by BP, the British government is buying into the electric future as well. Under the Road to Zero strategy the Transportation Secretary has been pursuing, the government will soon adopt new rules that provide a three-pronged approach to easing range anxiety and encouraging Britons to adopt EVs. First, electric vehicle chargers will become mandatory on all newly constructed homes, which un will undoubtedly be a great asset to the rich people buying them and add costs they may not have been planning on spending or using. Uh, second, every new streetlight in the country will come equipped with a vehicle charger if it's nearby to street parking. Finally, the government is also investing £40 million into research to develop low-cost wireless charging technology. All of this seeks to reduce both emissions and noise in major cities like London, where congestion charges have gone a long way to reducing smog, but not far enough to be healthy. The UK has previously committed to banning internal combustion vehicles by 2040, but new legislation seems to suggest that hybrids have a place in the future, so it may just be gas-only or diesel-only vehicles that get the axe in a couple of decades. Regardless, despite Brexit, England looks like they still have some good ideas over there. Also in England, happening this very week and this weekend is the Goodwood Festival of Speed, wherein many fast cars attempt to ascend a rich guy's driveway faster than one another and make a tremendous amount of racket doing so. Um, one of the vehicles tackling the hill climb this year is the new Toyota Supra, which was lightly camouflaged to continue the seemingly decades-long strip tease that has frustrated enthusiasts. It's uh, set to go on sale in the second half of next year, though, and is actually going to be racing in NASCAR. Granted, the NASCAR vehicle will be nothing like the road car. Um, so we should be seeing the final production version pretty soon. Um, also heading up the hill is an autonomous, or headed up the hill, was an autonomous 1967 Ford Mustang built by Siemens, which actually completed its run shortly before recording this show. Uh, the car's entire autonomous system is GPS-based with no cameras, and it showed because the poor Mustang 
poked along slowly, making sudden, violent turns requiring correction by the safety driver, who wasn't able to keep it from scraping against the hay bales lining the wall. Um, it was pretty unexciting, but as a project from the University of Cornwall, I bet the students responsible were pretty thrilled. A more robust self-driving vehicle, the Robo Race, is also set to complete the hill climb, but I'm even less excited about this one. It's a unique design that holds no passengers and only exists as a robot race car, which sort of defeats the purpose of being a car entirely, because weren't they designed to carry passengers? Um, but the real treat for attendees will be seeing the all-electric Volkswagen. And this isn't just an e-golf, it's the IDR, which set the all-time record for the fastest ever climb up Pikes Peak last month. Just as with that event, the record at Goodwood is there for the smashing, and I think the VW has what it takes to do it. In local news this week, St. Louis is so bad that Lamborghinis just passing through are self-immolating. That's not quite the case, but a Lamborghini Huracan Performante did burn to the ground at a gas station in a wealthy part of town this week. It was the victim of a teenage driver who, undoubtedly smitten with seeing not one but two Lamborghinis pull up to the gas pumps next to him, proceeded to drive his Chrysler town and country off without first pulling the fuel pump out of his own car. The hose snapped off at the pump, which then started spraying that sweet liquid gold all over everything, including the hot exhaust of the Lamborghini, which proceeded to ignite and burn, baby, burn. Uh, this Lamborghini was apparently part of the Gold Rush Rally, and my wife and I actually saw the car driving around the area the previous night, revving constantly, even behind other cars at stoplights, which is eh, kind of lame. Uh, insurance will be taking care of this, but I cannot imagine what's going to happen to that kid's rates once this thing is all over. Um, as their efforts to become an all-encompassing mobility solution for everyone and everywhere intensifies, Uber has announced an investment into Lime, the bicycle and scooter-sharing service responsible for the obnoxious green bikes you have to shove out of the middle of the sidewalk to get into your office every morning. Uh, it's not just the bikes, though, that Uber is uh, keenly interested in. After all, they did invest in a rival bike-sharing company called Jump earlier this year. But it's the electric scooters that Lime has rolled out in uh, so many cities. The scooters offer sort of an in-between option for people wanting to not get sweaty on a bike and not wanting to wait around for a car they have to hail. Details of the amount Uber spent and the extent of the service that Uber will get out of this are limited for now, but I wouldn't put it past Uber to completely swallow up Lime at some point. Uh, no doubt doing wonders for preventing scurvy. Uh. Uh, meanwhile, at Apple, their still unconfirmed self-driving car project ran into some speed bumps this week as former employee, uh, a former employee was arrested for stealing a 25-page plan for a circuit board inside Apple's vehicle. Zhao Long Zhang started back in Apple in 2015 and apparently got an offer he couldn't refuse from China where he intended to flee with the documents. He was arrested dramatically at the airport before boarding a flight he booked at the very last minute, indicating that the feds had probably been on to him for some time, if they could mobilize that rapidly. Um, all of this just goes to show how precious this proprietary information is and the importance of authorities in keeping valuable information out of the hands of companies uh, who have not paid to develop it. Uh, speaking of car sharing, uh, manufacturers aren't letting Uber and Lyft uh, be the only game in town. Toyota is getting in on the car sharing service, but only in Honolulu, Hawaii. 
where the new service called Hui will allow people with the app to drive Toyotas and Lexuses for around $10 per hour or $80 per day, which includes gas and insurance. There will be 25 parking stations around the city for round-trip use, and Toyota says they'll use data gleaned from this pilot to determine how to optimize its supply of cars, presumably to begin rolling this out in other markets. Remember, Toyota has invested a bit in Uber back in 2016, and just last month dumped a cool billion on Southeast Asia's largest ride-sharing service, Grab Holdings, so they are very much jumping into this pool with two feet, because headfirst would be way too dangerous for the very safety-conscious Japanese. Very sensible. Um, there truly aren't that many letters left in the alphabet to try to associate it with anything automotive. R, S, and T, and combinations thereof of all connotations, and that even forced Lexus to go with F for their performance brand, despite that being the letter most closely associated with a poor grade in class. Uh, BMW has long used M to designate their fast cars because M is for motorsport, right? Well, Volvo has other ideas with M meaning mobility, so they have announced an upcoming launch of M, a smartphone-based car-sharing service with on-demand access to vehicles through the app. Here in the States and in Sweden, we'll get the service starting next year with it rolling out to other countries within the next decade. It's not often that my love of both soccer and cars intersect, but it has done so this week with the transfer of one of the world's best players, Cristiano Ronaldo, from Real Madrid to Juventus. And why the hell would this matter in a car podcast? Well, Juventus is 64% owned by the Agnelli family of Italy, who also own 30% of Fiat Chrysler, though both companies are completely separate entities with separate finances and separate operations, not to mention very separate business types. But... Since Juventus agreed to paying Real Madrid $117 million to purchase Ronaldo's contract, a small union representing some but not all employees of Fiat Chrysler's Melfi plant have decided to go on strike because they think that it is somehow a sign of disrespect to thousands of plant workers who have been on temporary layoff for years due to lack of new models. Uh, I guess the logic is, if the Agnellis can spend that much on one of their business ventures, why can't they spend it in another and support workers making shitty quality cars that will probably burn themselves down before Ronaldo's four-year contract is up? This, despite the fact that Fiat Chrysler recently launched a new five-year investment plan that says it will bring back all of those laid-off employees by the end of 2022, which is still not super close. Not ironically, Jeep is the official shirt sponsor of Juventus, so with Ronaldo's pretty face and body underneath the shirt, they stand to gain some crazy market awareness from selling jerseys with his name on the back, which can only help the company more. Nevertheless, the strike will go on from Sunday to early on Tuesday, by which time I guess they're confident that Fiat Chrysler's going to have learned their lesson or something. Uh, also in soccer-related news, Johan Cruyff Stadium in Amsterdam has developed an automotive connection, um, specifically the home of the Dutch national soccer team and AFC Ajax, is now home to Europe's largest energy storage installation, allowing the stadium to run off of battery power and to provide the stadium and surrounding homes power in case of an outage. The source of the batteries for this major storage project? Retired Nissan Leafs. 
So in addition to providing street lighting to underserved areas of Japan, old Nissans are now helping the Dutch enjoy the beautiful game a little more responsibly. Though natural gas and coal provide about 81% of energy in the Netherlands, it's not entirely green, but it does help reduce stress on the electrical grid by taking power off overnight and storing it for use during the day. Given how incredibly many electric vehicles we saw in the Netherlands when we were there last year, I'd say they probably have a few more stadiums set up this way in a few years, which is pretty neat. Uh, now, I, I didn't intend for this show to rival Mad Money, since Jim Cramer knows more about wise investing than I ever could. But I do have a top tip this week, and it comes straight from bankers in Germany, who have been advising their clients away from purchasing stocks and bonds. What's taking their place? Vintage sports cars. Specifically, cars greater than 30 years old and worth more than 100,000 euros. Over the past 13 years, the values of the Porsche 911 have increased 683%, drastically beating the German stock market and rivaling wine and art for assets more immune to financial crises than stocks. 911 is such a favorite of bankers because there's such a large market for them. Other cars may well be wise investments, but they may struggle to find buyers, whereas the Porsches just fly off the proverbial shelf. All of this, of course, breaks my heart because I so dislike the idea of cars being used as investments rather than as, you know, cars, especially when they're as good to drive as the 911 is. Porsche was right when their magazine called this sort of thing immoral. And in the words of Elon Musk, shame! Um, stealing gas, uh, though, has come a long way from pumping and running, which I'm sure is still a problem in some places, but now there are much more sophisticated thieves out there making headlines. In Detroit this week, hackers were able to tap into a pump at a marathon gas station and fill approximately 10 cars, getting away with around $1,800 worth of free fuel before an attendant was finally able to hit the emergency stop and halt the operation. The attendant said none of his controls from his booth were working, and he had been completely locked out of the system by the hackers who have yet to be caught. Apparently, gas stations are easy targets because many rely on internet-connected technologies and some are not set up properly, leaving them open to exploitation by people with the certain set of skills. Um, in addition to Detroit, case, uh, there was a case in Texas last month where somebody reported using a device to steal 800 bucks worth of gas as well. And people are worried about their baby monitors being hacked. I mean, what are they going to do? Admire Jaden's stripy pajamas? No, hackers have better shit to do, people, like steal gas. So when normal couples get into an argument, I think the usual course of action is to state your case, listen to your partners, and then figure out some sort of compromise. Caleb Wilson is not one half of a normal couple, and his idea of a compromise is trying to run over his girlfriend with his Dodge Ram 2500 as she exited a Walmart in El Dorado, Texas. Fortunately for everyone, Caleb is just as horrible a driver as he is a decision maker and missed crashing through the entrance, through the bakery, the produce, canned vegetables, and frozen food, but just barely sparing the cereal aisle. After burning some sweet rubber inside America's discount store, he managed to back his car out in time to flee police straight into a parked Camry. Um, estimates place the total damage at $500,000 and a fresh ex-girlfriend 
Meanwhile, Caleb is being held and evaluated for mental stability, as if there was ever really any question about that. Um, here's a crazy story from Canada, where they do their best not to be very crazy at all. Um, in Cornwall, Ontario, a man had his Infiniti QX50 stolen, also from the parking lot of a Walmart. In itself, that is not too crazy, especially when you consider the dumbass left his keys inside the vehicle. He was almost asking for it, but it's Canada, and nobody ever commits crimes there, so maybe it's okay in context. In any case, two weeks later, his car was returned to a rental car agency about a mile from Walmart by a woman who is very irate at the agency for renting her such a dirty car with golf clubs in the back that plainly hadn't been cleaned before she picked it up. Um, that's not the car we rented you, said the guy behind the counter to the woman who insisted that it was and that she went directly from the rental agency to pick up a few things from Walmart. This is when the rental agency manager put two and two together because the very same guy who had his Infinity stolen rented a car from that same agency. The manager had the woman drive him to the Walmart parking lot and asked her to point out where she parked, and there it was, the Nissan Sentra sedan that the rental agency had given her. One might hope that someone wouldn't confuse a luxury compact crossover for a very non-luxury compact sedan, but that was the case, and people are just that stupid. And boy, did that woman feel that way. Uh, the police were called, and the situation was straightened out, but I still can't help but feel bad for the guy who missed out on two weeks of golf because some lady can't tell the difference between two cars. Now, for some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless brand new. you might see me in my whip with my in case you forgot, Maserati makes an SUV called the Levante, and you'd be forgiven for forgetting that, because even Fiat Chrysler CEO Sergio Marchione said that they totally botched the launch of that car. Anyway, it exists, and now a more powerful version exists too, the Levante GTS. It borrows power from a Ferrari twin-turbo V8 developing 542 horsepower, and just about the same amount of torque, reaching 60 in 4.2 seconds, and going to a top speed of 181, which absolutely no one should be doing in a crossover. Um, it looks pretty and goes nicely, and at more than $121,000 is not remotely reasonable, which you would probably expect when considering part of it's made by Ferrari. Uh, look out for these in the suburbs where you can tell when the nanny is at home because there's an old Hyundai Elantra parked in the circle drive near the fountain sometime soon. Um, if you've been into cars longer than this podcast has been around, then you may recall the Aston Martin Signet. Not because it was a very good car, but because it was, in fact, a Scion IQ dressed up to look like an Aston Martin because of corporate average fuel economy rules that needed to be complied with. It was a ridiculous bit of badge engineering that essentially served no purpose but to make the man happy. But somebody has finally gone and make, made the Signet much more Aston-like. Um, that is, of course, by shoehorning in a gigantic V8. Um, now, if you've ever seen or especially been inside a Scion IQ as I have, where I was able to reach from the driver's seat and touch the glass of the rear hatchback, you'll know that there is an exactly copious space for a V8 inside this car. But they've somehow done it, and it puts out a not-small 430 horsepower. 
Since it is very nearly the size and weight of a postage stamp, it actually accelerates faster than the old V8 Vantage S hitting 60 miles per hour in 4.2 seconds and topping out at 170. But given how twitchy the steering was on such a short wheelbase car at even 70 miles per hour, I can't imagine 100 miles per hour faster than that being anything less than just pants-shittingly terrifying. Now, if you listen to this show, you probably know what the Aerial Atom is, but if not, it's basically a bit of scaffolding with four wheels, two seats, and a powerful four-cylinder engine that provides performance greater than pretty much any other road-going vehicle. Uh, This glorified go-kart's been around already for 20 years, which I find shocking. And the company has just announced the fourth generation of this vehicle, and with a whole new chassis and bodywork, reworked suspension and steering, new brakes, and Honda's Civic Type R turbo four-cylinder. They say that only three parts from the old car have been kept, the clutch and brake pedals and the fuel cap. Uh, So yeah, it's pretty new. Uh, performance is ridiculous as usual with a 2.8 second 0 to 60 sprint and you'll be at 100 faster than most cars get to half that speed Uh, you'll get 320 horsepower and a great noise plus with the smaller engine they were able to fit a bigger fuel tank so you can get a whole 300 miles before refueling if you can stand having your face peeled away from your skull for that for that long Uh, Sadly, they'll only be making about 100 of these per year starting next spring, but unsadly, they are not ludicrously priced. One can be had for right around $53,000, which is a lot of money for a very little car, but when considering that an M5, which does the same speed, starts at $102,600 and doesn't handle nearly as well, things uh, don't look so bad. Uh, Now, I'm a big fan of the Nissan GTR. And, uh, and I point one out whenever I see one, which is maybe about once a week. But I, I think one of the major objections anyone has to this car is that it feels like the car is driving itself and that there's not enough emotion to it. Well, Ital Design has attempted to fix this, not by changing the way the car drives, but by making the car feel a little more Italian by redesigning bits of how it looks. I think it's pretty stunning, and they kept the best part of it and how fast it drives. And I think Japanese engineering and Italian design should be a combo explored a little more than it is now. Granted, the $1.06 million price tag might mean this car doesn't find its way into too many driveways of many enthusiasts. It's going to be another damn collector car. Um, when I think of tastelessness in cars, though, I, I something that immediately comes to mind is gaudy paint jobs or gold and chrome vehicle wraps. Fortunately for bros with more vape than brains, uh, many vehicle manufacturers are catching on and will actually make you your very own gold vehicle so you don't have to go get your buddy Jake to do the wrapping for you. BMW is hopping on board with the gold train with the Starlight editions of both the i3 and i8 vehicles. Limited to just one copy of each, both of which will be auctioned off for charity, it's probably the best way to do the whole gold thing. And it's not some super reflective wrap, it's actually 24 karat gold flake in four layers sprayed onto the car, and it fades to black at the back of the vehicle. So I think this actually looks really nice. Um, Probably too understated and classy for the whole flat bill cap wearing crowd, but they're probably going to cost enough that it it puts it out of the range of your average YouTube viral celebrity anyway. Um, Now we do have an obituary this week. When it debuted in 2008, it was firmly the world's cheapest car. 
costing just $2,000 and going on sale only in India, where poor buyers didn't care much about zero-star crash test ratings or a paltry 36 horsepower or the fact that the rear hatchback didn't actually open. Uh, going to sell nearly 75,000 cars in 2011 and 2012, the Tata Nano was the essence of simplicity and cheapness, built to mobilize a population previously unable to afford to do so. Sadly for the Nano, but happily for India, the middle class got richer and started to want things like power or features or a rear hatchback that opens. Uh, those sales of the Nano, uh, so sales of the Nano shrunk precipitously, and, and after years of waning public interest, the Nano has finally been spared further misery and was formally killed off this week. I will never forget the horror of my reaction to watching that crash test for the original car. Rest in peace, Nano. Um, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you to for listening, and thank you to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. I haven't decided what car I want to feature at the end of this week's show, so I'm just going to watch some footage from the Goodwood Hill Climb until I find something compelling, which, again, shouldn't take too long. Here it is, friends, your moment of zen. Ah!